Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Economics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Utsav Saxena, and I'm a host for this channel. Today, we will be speaking to Mr. Vikrant Pandey about his new book, The SBI Story, Two Centuries of Banking. Uh, so now, sir, let me take this opportunity to formally welcome you to the New Books Network. Uh, my pleasure. Before we start talking about the book, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. So, sir, I, I was a typical corporate employee for almost 25 years after graduating from IIM Bangalore in 1992 and worked in various large financial services, insurance uh, and such companies. Around eight years back, I shifted to Baroda uh, to move from regular uh, job to heading India's first skills university, which was Team Lee's skills university. By then, I realized, I had working there for five years, that uh, I had a lot of uh, translations which I was doing from Marathi into English, and they were coming out very well. Nine of them had been published by HarperCollins, one with Pan Macmillan and Amazon. And I was getting a lot of work, and I thought that if I had to follow my passion completely, then probably I should not be doing anything else, do this full time. And which is where I started uh, my journey as a full-time author, before that, as a part-time author. The first book I wrote full-time uh, was a very interesting book called In the Footsteps of Ram, Travels to the Ramayana, where it's a travelogue with a co-author of mine, Nilesh Kulkarni. And we traveled from Ayodhya to Sri Lanka. And along the route, we not only wrote about our experiences of travel, but we also discovered and wrote a lot of unknown or relatively lesser-known stories of Ramayana. In fact, that book is now being made into a travel serial by a very large OTT producer as well. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Congratulations on that. Now, I had written the Tata's book, which was the Marathi trans- translated from Marathi into English, the Tata, the family that built a business and a nation. And it had got the Gaja Capital Award for the best business book in 2019. And I thought, why not combine my experience of being in the corporate sector, having worked with companies, to look at myself as a business historian who could probably write stories about business. The SBI came about as a very fascinating story. I didn't realize that SBI has 200 years of history. It began way back in 1806 as the Presidency Bank in Bank of Bengal. And when I went to the SBI museum in Kolkata, I was very pleasantly surprised to find that the archives and the detailed material they have is just unbelievable. Of course, I need to mention here that Professor Amiyokumar Bakchi from Presidency College, Calcutta, and uh, Abhik Rai, who headed the history department, have done extensive work in the history of the bank, written almost around 5,000 pages of the history. So for me, it became a very easy task to look at that material, which was very, very detailed, and try and come out with something which was very enjoyable for a layman to pick up, and not necessarily a very research-oriented or a very classic uh, book which students of economics might read but not a common person at the airport and that's how the SBI story uh, got written and I was 
surprised to find the amount of anecdotes and you know stories which are there from right from 1800 till 2022 so it was a fascinating 200 years of jyoti which went through right sir and that you know your introduction really plays well into my next question which is that um, um you know while this book it's uh, so i had the kindle edition and it's only 290 pages long but it's absolutely jam packed with information so you know you've mentioned already two sort of almost canon like sources right uh, professor uh, amiyakar bagichi's book and also abikre's uh, volume on the sbi um so what was the process of con- condensing all that you know those massive i think they uh, like three or four volumes right combined into this yeah, you know this yeah there were six volumes and they oh, right. uh, total to more than almost uh, probably 4000 to 5000 pages right so um how how was it a challenge to condense a lot of that information into just 290 pages uh yes i think i followed a rule that i wanted to write a book which is not technical i didn't want to use any technical jargon even a simple thing like a monetary policy or a credit policy or assets and balance sheet and things like that because i wanted to keep the book very simple so uh, professor bakchi and uh, avikrai's book has a lot of details which are fantastic for a student of history or a student of economics uh, but at the same time the book also has some amazing anecdotes about hr about the way they treated employees the way the discussions took place when the imperial bank was formed and the sbi was formed and after the sbi and then the chairman of sbi so i found that there was a lot of material which was i would not say hidden but i had to extract that from the book to ensure that uh, that's the one i present for the reader i see i see that makes sense uh, now let's delve into book delve into the book itself um so you know as we know so modern banking and i say this with you know air quotes um is essentially like in india started with the advent of the uh, east india company but traditionally speaking like uh, ways of allocating financial resources financial systems in india have been um, you know quite well developed since even like the ancient period so could you speak you've written about this in the book like the first couple of pages so could you also just uh, speak about that for a for one or two sentences That yes uh, you're right the east india company created what is called as a joint stock banking because before that what we had was you know the jagat sets of the world the virji vora and surat who were funding the mughal emperor who were fund- funding the peshwas for battles so they were very rich large families which were funding uh, giving money to the peshwas marathas the uh, uh, the mughal emperors and also to british east india company essentially for uh, warfare and in trading but the concept was it was a 100% liability because the owner owned the company so the concept of joint stock stock banking came about only with the east india company where there was a concept of a limited liability and a shareholder and the liability would remain to the extent of the share capital put in the uh, bank i see and um, so you you actually sort of um, split the sort of this era into the actually no not really split but the english era into the pre 1857 era and the post 1857 era because of course like after 1857 uh, the india directly came under uh, uh, british crown rule so yeah yeah and um, right so let's speak about the pre 1857 era now you mentioned that there were 
Okay, so before that, um, you know, you the the uh, the, fina- the sort of uh, the prevailing regime that um, was around at the time, it almost reminded me of you know uh, what is called the wildcat banking era in the United States, where there you know. Um, of course, there are a few, you know, um, well-established banks which are properly regulated, but you have all these, you know, new, new institutions popping up here and there, which, you know, maybe they issue currency and, you know, perform traditional banking services as well, but they go bust after a few years. Um, now, in this, in, in, within, say, this environment, uh, we had three sort of, you know, presidency banks come up. So if you could sort of... Um, speak speak to as to how these things how these three institutions came up that would be very useful so the east india company primarily set up these banks uh, not really for indian businessmen you know they were indian businessmen who were borrowing money from them but their main purpose really was to help the british employees the east india employees who wanted to repatriate money the east india company employees were doing a lot of trading on the side there was a lot of corruption and the money had to be repatriated back to England. So the bank was really playing the role of facilitating the, uh, you know, agencies as they were called. Some of the agencies had uh, partners like Dwarkana Tagore in Calcutta or some of the Parsis in Bombay. For example, in Madras, it was purely run by the British Gorasai. And these banks were clearly not set up in order to help the common man. You know, in 1840, to open a current account, you needed 500 rupees in the bank, which is a huge amount. So it very clearly shows that they were not concerned about growing Indian economy or making Indian people really build their business, borrow money from the bank and invest that in businesses and uh, take it up. It was essentially a very, very European bank with all the employees as uh, also whites except for all the clerks and lower level people who were Indians. And till the British Empire came in, in 1857, it was a significant change, where the currency then issuing was with the empire. Before that, it was the banks who were issuing the currencies. Uh, so that was a big change. But even after that, it continued to be a bank, not for the masses, but only for the classes. I see, I see, and uh, so you mentioned you mentioned in the book that three of these banks came up, right? So there was the Bank of Bengal, the Bank of Bombay, and the Bank of Madras, and coincidentally, they were all in the uh, uh, the most uh, sort of uh, largest presidency, the three presidencies of the East India Company, of East yeah. India India Company as they existed, right? Now moving through somehow, like okay, we will not go into the you know the whole um, Sepoy Mutiny and the first in- Indian War of Independence because maybe that's beyond the realm of this current topic but um, you mentioned that the american civil war and i found this to be absolutely fascinating it had quite a you know significant impact as far as both industry and credit was concerned so what exactly happened when the american uh, civil war broke out the british uh, cotton industry was dependent on the cotton coming from the southern states of usa and when the civil war broke out all the supplies stopped and Manchester and all these, uh, Liverpool, all the cities which were uh, dependent on cotton from USA found that, I mean, it was, that time it was not USA, it was just America. They found that the cotton is not reaching them. And the Parsis in Bombay especially took advantage of that to say that this is a great opportunity for us 
to really go and start supplying cotton from India because India was a very large producer of uh, cotton to supply to the UK. And for a few years, there was a cotton boom. There were people, some of them were called the cotton king. And uh, the Parsis did extremely well. Unfortunately, what was not expected was that the moment the civil war got over, or some sort of a reconciliation took place in the uh, and the United States was formed, the supply straight away shifted back to United States. It continued from India, but not to the extent where it was. The kind of investment people had made, that set of factories, that set of trading houses. And that created a lot of, uh, you know, sort of the boom and a bust. But you have to admire the Parsis, that the Parsis by then had tasted blood and they knew that these are fantastic opportunities. By then, the opium war came up in China and including the Tatas, they started supplying opium from Malwa and the railways had come up. So it was easy to transport material to Bombay and then from there shipping it to Hong Kong and from Hong Kong into uh, China, which China was opposing, but there was a huge demand for opium. So that again became a very large source of uh, business for uh, for the Parsis, especially in Bombay, not so much in Madras and uh, Calcutta. I see. And um, how did these three banks sort of continue to develop their, um, you know, operations, if one can call it that, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century? Say, maybe the pre-World War One era, that time. So they were focused on the three presidencies, so to say, of the East India Company, which is the Bengal, Bengal Bombay and, Mal, uh, and Madras, and they had their own geographical uh, territories. Though there was some dispute where Bank of Bengal had opened an office in Bombay, but largely they focused on keeping their branches in the very... See, India is huge, right? So, you can imagine the Bombay presidency going up to Lahore and the Calcutta presidency going up to Punjab and Shimla and the Madras presidency occupying the entire Orissa and South State. So, they're massive. So, the number of the area they were operating was very, very large. And by then, they had short, started operating the treasuries of the Holkers or the Nizam. And that was also being done by the respective uh, presidency banks, where they found that these were interesting opportunities to manage that money. And it was in the early 20th century that the Swadeshi movement started picking up. So Lala Lashpatraya set up the Bank of Punjab. Uh, and in Calcutta, we saw a lot of Swadeshi movement with companies coming out, the Bengal chemicals, which still exist today. In Bombay, we found a lot of textile mills. Bank of Baroda was set up in Baroda, the Canada Bank. So in Kerala, there were some banks which came up. So the Swadeshi movement in the early 20th century started seeing Indian banks coming up uh, to compete not only with the presidency banks, but also to provide capital to Indian businessmen, which was, uh, which was lacking. I see. And this um, and this uh, sort of, you would say, you know, discrimination or neglect of the native Indian population, this remained a constant feature throughout. Is that correct? As far as the presidency bands so were concerned. Look, yeah. So if you look at the salaries, if you look at the working conditions, and I give some very interesting examples in the book about the working conditions, about the way they paid, about there was no, uh, you know, there was no policy about how much increment somebody would get, what kind of uh, raise he would get whether you would get pension or not. I mean, all that was very, very ad hoc and discriminatory. Unlike the uh, British officer who used to come uh, into India as a probationary officer 
and mind you in the early 1920 century he would get a salary of something like 800 rupees which is a huge salary for him to live and you know the secretary of the bank in the mid 1850s and 1870s had a salary of around 5000 rupees like the ceo 5000 rupees per month you can imagine is the equivalent of many crores today so they were uh, having a fantastic time while they didn't care about the indians even after the imperial bank was formed in 1921 where the british empire decided that we need to now set up all the presidency banks and merge them into one and call it the imperial bank so that it becomes like the reserve bank equivalent of india but the imperial bank while they started a few good things like the provisional officer system there was a lot of uh, clamor and by then our legislative councils had started becoming very vocal you had nehru mal madan mohan malviya you have many other people who were constantly arguing in the legislative council that they are not giving enough opportunities for indians to participate and so there is a lot of debate uh, around that and by then the clamor for independence had started picking up the dandi march and all that with gandhi so from 20 to 40 you find a lot of that happening uh, before india gained independence right i see and so you have already actually touched upon what i was going to ask next which is that uh, um so what how what was the process of you know um to say you know amalgamating these three presidency banks into a single imperial bank of india and what was the so they were of course as you mentioned they were concerns by uh, the native indian population right and and uh, and these were brought up in the legislative council legislative assembly but um, and but you mentioned that the ultimate decision as was the case back then was the was that of the English, british right so how did this come about this uh, merging of the three banks into one institution so they uh, there was a lot of debate because the bank of bengal was at one time more profitable they there was a lot of debate about the shareholder agreements and how the respective banks should be paid for being now called imperial bank but notwithstanding that the east india company the british empire realized that we now needed to have a single bank which will be responsible for issuing currency which will be responsible for the monetary policies of the country because by then it had become a fully governed uh, indian nation so the equivalent of rbi didn't exist you know you have to keep in mind that the reserve bank of india was not there so the imperial bank then started playing the role of what is so it was playing both the roles it was acting as a issuing bank for currency and it was also continued to lend and take deposits Uh, and uh, things like that till the rbi was formed in 1935 after the rbi was formed then the imperial bank became a purely commercial bank which was meant to operate only as a independent bank in the business of loans and deposits but by then there was also a lot of uh, you know clamor especially after the independence that we needed a bank which would go out and really help indians to build their business encourage savings create deposits offer loans to f- small farmers offer loans to small businessmen and nobody is willing to do that because all these private banks were very clearly profit oriented they would look at each branch and decide that should i open a branch in a particular place because it is not making any sense so there was a lot of uh, debate in the parliament from 47 till 55 you know uh, almost 8 uh, years before the state bank of india actually was formed a lot of people including jrd tata had raised that point that why do you want to 
nationalized a well-running imperial bank and he had suffered that air india uh, you know where air india had been nationalized and so he was not really in favor of that but the overwhelming majority felt that if you wanted india to grow you had to create a bank which would allow and not be completely profit oriented but will do things because the government believes that the way to build indian economy is to have thousands of branches in india and only then can you attract deposits go back to small farmers small businessmen small traders in in the large country which is india not this 3 4 or 15 big cities and that's where the the origin of the state bank of india took place i'm sort of, sort of jumping your question probably but you might have asked uh, oh no not at all not at all sir so um, uh, another so i one thing i do want to sort of um, come back to is uh, you mentioned this already which is this overlap between you know this uh, so the imperial bank of india essentially performing this dual role being a commercial bank on the one hand and also uh, performing certain functions that we would now attribute to say a modern central bank which is to say the uh, controlling the currency foreign exchange reserves uh, banker to the government and so on and so forth um so was the, as you mentioned actually it's very interesting because uh when the rbi was set up the reserve bank of india the official central bank of india for our listeners um there was actually a transfer of both uh, resources and of people from the imperial bank to the newly formed R- reserve bank of india is that right correct correct that's right absolutely so rbi was carved out of imperial bank in that sense and then imperial bank continued to in fact the rbi for some time had rotating office Uh, or at least on paper they were supposed to be in all the three presidency banks uh, but then oh sorry that's the imperial bank but then they uh, they, they were finally uh, bombay and by then started becoming a very very important commercial center so the imperial bank head office and the rbi head office uh, both were in bombay because they felt that it would be uh, very easy to coordinate right and another thing that just uh, just occurred to me right now which is that so uh, even though the rbi had now by, so i'm talking about say around 1947 that time when india became independent and the rbi was obviously in existence but at the same time there was one crucial role that the rbi still did not have right which was the regulator of the banking system as we know it today uh so you've mentioned in the book with uh, you know in quite some detail as to how you know uh, the independence period which is that when india became a separate country and the like undivided india was split into uh, india and pakistan uh, it was quite a tumultuous time because again uh, it led to a lot of banks small small banks that had popped up here and there being um, either closed down or again being merged with um, uh, you know other banks as well absolutely because uh, while banking looks like a easy business to run you are taking deposits and giving uh, loans you find that uh, you know the credit policies and the way you run the bank is not just for anybody to do so there were a lot of uh, banks which folded up somewhere bought by the existing company, uh, banks and some just uh, closed down and which is why there was all the more reason for people to say that the imperial bank should now be made the national bank the state bank of india because we needed a strong national bank which is going to go and perform the role which the new founders of india were envisaging of what a bank should do for the country 
I see, I see. Uh, so yeah, this actually brings uh, goes in very well to my next question, which is the conversion of the Imperial Bank of India into the State Bank of India, which was finally done in the year 1955. Uh, so you've mentioned in the book um, that, you know, there were these various committees and reports and surveys, and many of them pertained to rural areas and agricultural credit. So one of them was the All India Rural Credit Survey. Then there was the Rural Banking Inquiry Committee. So you know, one can see from the very onset that the the basis on which the State Bank of India was to be created or, you know, was actually very different from, you know, say any other commercial bank. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, you know, it also has the uh, linkages to Nehru socialism where the whole idea was that we wanted to create a country which is self-dependent. You know, Nehru has started oil refineries, steel plants, fertilizer plants. And the bank formed a logical extension of some of those thoughts that you can't have, unlike America, completely privatization of banks. We needed somebody who plays the role uh, and the RBEC, the Rural Banking Survey, the All India Credit Survey, very clearly showed that a common man in India had no access to credit. A farmer could not go anywhere. A trader could not borrow money they last for collateral, they last for so many things. And the only way to grow the economy was making money available for people because there was an enterprise, there was business, there were transactions happening. But if you don't fund those transactions, then the business cannot grow. And that clearly was, uh, so the mandate SBI had was to open branches and not necessarily look at profit alone. But right from beginning, play a role of ensuring what it was supposed to do. The profit was meant incidental, at least in the first few years of its uh, existence. And quite clearly, as a commercial entity, they also started looking at profits. And we see now later on how SBI has grown into the mammoth bank it is, with tremendous profits and successful in many other areas. But that was not the way it started uh, in 1955. I see. And uh, so what were the some what were some of the arguments that um, say, you know, so there were a lot of proponents, as you've already mentioned, we've talked about this. But in terms of the critics, you already mentioned GRD Tata, you know, very famous industrialist of the time, whose legacy still um, prevails today. But what what were some of the arguments that uh, critics had uh, with regards to nationalizing this Imperial Bank of India into the State Bank of India? See, it was seen as grabbing by the government that, you know, you have a well-run foreign bank, which is there in India, not just because you had to become independent, you're forcing the bank to become nationalized. In 1956, just one year after the state bank, 256 insurance companies were also merged to form the Life Insurance Corporation of India, LIC Act. So again, insurance government felt that why there were 256 companies, it was not doing the task of making insurance known as a savings product, as a protection product, as something which should be available to all Indians. Mind you, 250 companies, you know, were merged to form the Life Insurance Corporation of India by an act of parliament. So those thoughts were very strong then, essentially led by the socialist uh, thinking, which I think at that point in time served the country well. I see. 
and so I'm jumping ahead a couple of years, actually 15 years to be precise, to the bank nationalization episode of 1969. Um, and uh, again, um, so in the media, especially these days, so there is a lot of, uh, I would say, derision towards this thing. And it's um, and regardless of what what one's stance is, and as you as you quote in the book, even the RBI has mentioned the bank national nationalization process as perhaps the most one of the most independent. Well, one, sorry, one of the most important in independent India. Now, um, so we most of us, I think, do know the arguments against banks bank nationalization, right? But uh, you mentioned in the book uh, again. This was quite fascinating for me that arguments for bank nationalization, particularly in terms of um, expanding agricultural credit, one, and second, also meeting the needs of the Green Revolution. So it would be great if you could uh, sort of explain this a little more. Correct. The Green Revolution was becoming a very, very successful experiment. In hindsight, some of those experiments have led to other problems like high consumption of water, pesticide. But I had a long journey with Dr. D.N. Ghosh, who was the architect of this 1969 uh, bank nationalization uh, project under Indira Gandhi. And 50 years from then, in 2019, he wrote a very interesting article where he said that in hindsight, it would look like something which was a need of the hour. They were clamor that Indira Gandhi was doing it because she was in trouble and she was trying to direct the attention somewhere else. While that was true, the Green Revolution and the agriculture funding was something which SBI alone, after 14 years of being formed, was not in a position to do. So there was a very strong need to get some of these banks like Punjab National Bank, the Bank of uh, the Canada Bank, Bank of Baroda, and so many of these banks to become, they were tilting the private banks, to become nationalized banks so that they also could follow the same mandate State Bank of India had in terms of going out and reaching out for rural credit, especially with the green revolution and other agriculture need, which was coming up in India in a very strong way. So there was a lot of criticism against that. But I think in retrospect, at least DN Ghosh very clearly maintains that it was something which uh, was not only necessary, but it achieved its goal of making Indian rural farmer a lot more self-sufficient. I see. And um, somehow, you know, so, you know, around that time, you, we also see, like, as you mentioned in the book, which is that um, we see a very interesting individual called Mr. Talwar head the um, State Bank of India. And, you know, you've spoken a lot about him. So it would be great if you could sort of uh, tell us, you know, what exactly his legacy was. Because again, for many people, uh, I mean, the SBI is a known entity, but the people at the helm, even uh, they still, you know, are not really, you know, known by their names or anything like that. Absolutely. I mean, many fascinating chairmen of SBI and RK Talwar was the first one to come from as a probationary officer and be made the chairman at the young age of 45. So it was amazing. You know, at 45, we became the chairman and extremely uh, ethical, uh, independent, and the episode started because uh, R.K. Talwar refused to grant a loan to one of Sanjay Gandhi's friends in Rajasthan uh, because Talwar said that this does not meet the credit criteria. So Sanjay Gandhi was very upset and he wanted to remove Talwar. 
Now the finance minister told him that sir, I can't remove the chairman of SBI because SBI has been formed by the Act of Parliament, and the finance minister doesn't have the uh, you know the authority to remove him. So the Gandhis went to the Parliament and actually got the Act amended, and it is called the Talwar Hatao Act. By giving the powers to the finance minister to remove him, even after that, the finance minister, knowing Talwar's reputation, could only request. and make a suggestion saying sir aap resign kar do to acha hoga they didn't have the guts to uh, to terminate him and by then talwar was in his second term and he realized that it was becoming very very nasty and he resigned he spent uh, the rest of his years in oroville he was a very spiritual guy so he spent uh, he used to go to oroville also very often even before that and there were some people trying to break Controversy saying that you know he has forced some companies to pay donations to Oroville, but none of that could be ever proven because he was extremely above ground. It was very unfortunate that when Talwar left, uh, you know K V Kamat writes when he was a employee of SBI that nobody came to see him off. He left alone that evening. What an unfortunate thing for for a chairman to walk away from his office alone on his last day. Because everybody was very scared, so it was a very negative period in the history of the SBI. But Talwar stood his ground, and he is today known as one of the most ethical and one of the tallest leaders for SBI. After that, also many many chairmen of the bank have done wonderful job, and they all some of them I mentioned, I not mentioned all of them, and they continue to do. You know, it's very interesting to find that most of the SBI people are very unassuming for the. The role they play and for the power they wield. Whenever I spoke to them, including Arundhati Bhattacharya and some other people, I found that they are extremely forthcoming and uh, very easy to talk to. There is no air, there is no ego about that. I am the chairman of India's largest bank. So I think that's a uh, you know DNA which SBI carries here today. Yes, I see. I see, and you know, just just for our um, you know international listeners, I'll just mention that uh, Mr. Sanjay Gandhi was the son of um, India's um, uh, Prime Minister at the time, Mrs. Indira Gandhi, and the term uh, Talwar Hatao Act is actually like a bit of a joke because it essentially means in Hindi "Remove Talwar Act," which again points to some like the absurdity of the fact that an entire Act of Parliament was passed just to remove one individual. right okay right um and okay so this again plays in very well with the next question that i was going to ask was um so in your mind what would be no of course political interference is one but what would be some of the other challenges faced by a nationalized state owned bank with regards to, with uh, in comparison to say it come private commercial counterparts See, there are these uh, various schemes which are floated by the finance ministry or the government, and uh, being the India's largest public sector bank, SBI does tend to participate or is asked to participate in many of these schemes, and some of them don't necessarily need lead to profits. But notwithstanding that, SBI still has managed a very good balance sheet. I think there was a lot of questions people ask about the MPA, non-performing you know, assets. assets, right, hmm. and. the the fact that sbi is india's largest lender would automatically mean that in any mega project which is you know 10000 20000 crores or whatever sbi would be either leading the consortium of the lenders 
or would surely be a part of the consortium. So to that extent, SBI does have these uh, exposures. But I think it is to the credit of SBI and I have not deliberately gone into details about this part because there were, there were many uh, there were many uh, uh, you know, chairman, retired chairman have written in great detail. And uh, so I have not really done a critique critique of State Bank of India. My idea was to present a history of SBI and not really criticize or critique the bank's performance from an NPA perspective of some of the large loans they are given because I thought that that was outside my uh, you know understanding and domain. I see, I see. Um, now uh, we're now coming to the end of the book now, and one of the most fascinating parts for me personally was where you know where you mentioned that under the leadership of uh, a new chairman O.P. Bhatt, the SBI actually sought to reinvent itself uh, around the year 2006. Now, what exactly happened here, and what was done to change this? I mean, change the status quo, so to say. And you, like you mentioned, it's I mean, such was the such was the change that uh, like the example of SBI even made it to a business uh, school case study. So if you could explain what this exactly this was, that would be good. So people realize that, uh, you know, over time, 55 to 26, uh, it was becoming a very large, slow bank, which is not responding to customers the way it should. And OPBUT's entire initiative was that we need to go back and keep the customer at the center of its uh, uh, of all its decisions and he created that by starting a very large offsite in ambi valley and then really pursuing it by going out to all the branches across india and ensuring that the whole focus of sbi approach to the customer the customer at the center of its operation was really understood because he knew that by then if SBI does not do that, it is very likely to slip from its eminent position and become a non-entity. And OP but was very clear that he didn't want that to happen. So it was a very transformational exercise which was carried out by OP but more on the HR side, hmm. and it showed a lot of uh, it did a lot of dividends. I see, I see. And uh, so, uh, as you would know, like the banking industry today is going through a bit of a revolution, right? Uh, we have the advent of new business models. Okay, some sustainable, some not so sustainable. Uh, and even, you know, perhaps new forms of currency that are uh, coming up. So you one, we have, you know, ir- uh, unregulated cryptocurrencies on the one hand, and then, you know, uh, uh, a central bank digital currency on the other, which is, you know, entirely controlled by you know, one um, sort of central authority. So in this day and age, um, how do you think the State Bank of India being a government-owned um, bank, um, the largest, India's largest bank, how how do you think it would fare um, responding to these challenges and opportunities in the near future? So, you know, we have to keep in mind also that India is multiple Indias in the same country. You know, despite 75 years of independence, we still find that there are millions of people who do not have a bank account even today. So, on one hand, at the bottom, you find Pradhan Mantri's uh, that uh, Yojana to create bank account, Jandhan Yojana, 
played very well in creating billions of account but this is a work in progress you find a lot of microfinance companies micro lending companies in india which are still doing that work of giving loans of very small 5000 10000 rupees to farmers and co- groups of people so that is one extreme where there is a lot of work even today for the next 20 30 years that remains to be done right hmm. on the other hand you have upi and uh, upi interface which is making transactions very easy and a small vegetable vendor has started using that to buy to enable a transaction for a customer to buy even vegetables or bananas for 10 rupees and transfer it directly to the account he doesn't have to pay cash so the cash component is we are seeing a lot of behavioral change where people are moving out of cash which is a good thing for the economy you also have fintechs and that is still sort of a question mark as to how they would succeed but these are models coming up where people are looking at lending using innovative credit models uh, and they would take away some part of the business and these banks and which is where i need to talk about the sbi's yono app so you only need one app and it has become a tremendously successful app with a valuation which is amazing and there are a whole lot of vendors on the platform and sbi is transforming itself by ensuring that this yono app also becomes a way the modern customer would continue to engage with sbi while they will continue to do the work of going out to rural branches and rural credit and all that what they were doing 75 years back is uh, since 55 will still continue so it's multiple indias at the same time which need to be addressed i see and i think for me this is particularly fascinating because you know in many parts of the world the whole idea of a state owned bank you know Uh, that in itself you know is is problematic for people because they say there'll be you know misalignment of incentives and so on and so forth lack of commercial viability but here we have in india you know a bank which was um, you know in fact a private bank which was nationalized and yet has continued you know not 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 just to exist but in some ways even thrive um amidst all the competition that it has faced through uh, you know private p- banks and now perhaps even you know these uh, new fintech based lending apps and so on and so forth so 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 that brings us to the end of this uh, interview and uh, so just as a follow up question not related to the book itself but do you have any other plans to sort of continue your forays into uh, business and financial history so essentially what's next for you Yes, so multiple uh, uh, projects I am looking at. Uh, uh, continuing on the business history, uh, there are some interesting conversations I am having with people where uh, there are businesses which people want their story to be told to people because it may not be known. They might be a very uh, profitable company, extremely uh, you know successful in a particular niche area, but it may not be known to people. there is a chemical company in baroda i am talking to there is a company in chennai which is into agri finance again they are doing a lot of work on social impact of which people don't know much so business history is something i'll continue to do i'm also looking at uh, other books including translations uh, so now that i'm a full time uh, author uh, i keep uh, looking at ideas to uh, engage myself and uh, come out with Uh, more books and something which uh, people will enjoy reading uh, 
you know, as a as simple for a layman rather than making it very technical in nature. Okay, so on that note, uh, so we'll end end this interview here, uh, sir. Thank you for being in the New Box Network. My pleasure.